Welcome back to the Movie Babble podcast. Colin is away this week, so it's me, Brennan, and I'm joined by Nick. How's it going? What's going on, Brennan? Uh, not too much. I got no jokes for you. <laughs> Nothing today. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's going pretty well. Uh, this, this week, we have some good stuff to touch on, and it wouldn't be a uh, podcast uh, without us if we didn't touch on some award stuff, so we are going to touch on some Razzies. <laughs> Yeah, we always, the Oscars and all of their delineations follow us no matter what we do. <laughs> um, we also got uh, some interesting box office news out of China, as well as uh, a little bit out of New York as well. And then we're going to run through the typical Netflix top 10 and then go over some other stuff there near the end. Um, but first, let's jump into those Razzies. I think that's a good, fun way to start this thing off. So the uh, the Razzies, obviously the worst movies of the year awards. They uh, they're every year. They always present. I think like the same weekend as the Oscars. I think like the Saturday before the Sunday. The Oscars usually, um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but they're always pretty fun to look at. So let's do a little rundown here. So worst picture from the Razzies. Um, we got three sixty five days, absolute proof, Doolittle, Fantasy Island, and Music. I've seen two of those five. Um, both were not very good. Uh, how about you? Have you checked off all five of these? I've seen four out of five. Absolute Proof is the only one. And that's just because I didn't know this movie existed <laughs> until I saw this rundown, which has me a little worried because it's the it's the My Pillow dude, Mike Lindell, just like spouting conspiracy theories about the election. <laughs> uh, so I'm worried that the Razzies is giving it a bigger platform than it had before because I don't feel like anyone knew about yeah. this except if you're like a Q person yourself. So yeah, I think you're right. I think it definitely is. Uh, it's kind of helping to uh, maybe make it a little more popular. Um, it's funny because this kind of leads into our next one because Mike Lindell got a worst actor nomination. <laughs> um, but for me, I put 365 days as my worst movie of 2020. So it's at the very bottom there. So I would be kind of happy with that pick. I feel like out of these five, the the Razzies, like they always try to make a statement. I think you could see them pick absolute proof, but I don't know if it's popular enough for them to choose, if you know what I mean. So I could see music actually being their pick. I think music made enough uh, headlines with the Golden Globe nominations that it could be like a funny pick for them to do. Uh, what are you thinking here? Yeah, doesn't the Razzies, they always like to pile on with like kind of like they, they just see what people are making fun of on Twitter and then just make that the entire joke of the ceremony. Like when Batman v Superman came out, it was just like, it wasn't like, weren't like Ben Affleck and Cavill both nominated for worst actor yeah. or like the worst pair. And then it was just Batman v Superman for like everything. And it was funny, but like, that's kind of the one thing about the Razzies is just like, I feel like they're, they're in like, they're a meme that went too far, <laughs> you know? where <laughs> like they're just like all jokes and then like they just pile on and it sometimes it gets pretty mean-spirited because the, the irony leaves um but i feel like this year it's kind of funny to look at the lists except for uh there's a few hubie halloween noms in there and i will not have hubie halloween slander on this podcast <laughs> so <laughs> yeah that, that kind of leads right into our next one so worst actor adam sandler for hubie which is disgraceful um they didn't they didn't give him best actor <laughs> they didn't give him the razzy redeemer last year for uncut gems so i feel like they're doing him dirty here giving him another worst actor nomination um so you got adam sandler for hubie halloween david spade for the wrong missy uh michael marone for 365 days you got mike lindell and it's funny they this hollywood reporter article uh 
quotes in there the my pillow guy <laughs> for uh, absolute proof in case you didn't know <laughs> and then uh, robert downey jr for Doolittle. um this seems like a pretty predictable five especially with that robert downey jr one I-, I finally watched that like two weeks ago while i was just on the treadmill uh just like yeah, i just want to pop something on get a watch in while i'm just yeah. exercising that's the right place to watch that you know <laughs> and uh it was bad but his his accent's just it's 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 a little bit too much at times i i still i can't get out of my head that the end of that movie is just they help a dragon shit out a bunch of like was it like an accordion that was like stuck up its ass or something like that's the end of that movie someone thought that was a good idea (laughs) um i don't understand i could see mike lindell winning to be honest yeah i mean I feel like I I don't even know if I did I answer your question about which movie won best or worst picture. I feel like three sixty five days is the is the pick for me because I feel like that was the because I had the next Netflix machinery behind mm-hmm. it. People were making a lot of jokes about that, so I feel like that could run the table. Yeah, here. and Hubie Halloween's just um, not bad enough. Like it's not a Jack and Joe. I think that movie's actually fine. Like it's not a bad movie particularly, but yeah, yeah, I could see uh, the lead actor there from three sixty five days potentially winning because he was pretty popular. Like all his cringy creepy one-liners in the movie like they were all over twitter when it came out so i could see him pulling out the win here yeah and then he he chokes the the lead actress and it's supposed to be like this hot thing that the movie tries to play off it's the most bizarre <laughs> well the entirety of 365 <laughs> days is the most bizarre thing i've ever seen in my life but that's another conversation uh, it's rough so uh yeah so let's go into the best actress there or sorry, best worst actress sorry <laughs> No, it's the best actress. The in best first actress. Um, <laughs> you got Anna Marie uh, Siak Luca from 365 Days, which is obviously the uh, counterpart there in the lead role. Um, Lauren Lapkus from The Wrong Missy. Kate Hudson in Music, which I think will probably win. Uh, Katie Holmes for Bram's The Boy 2 and The Secret Dare to Dream. And she just, she's a Razzie darling. She always gets nominated. Um, <laughs> Anne Hathaway as well for The Last Thing He Wanted and The Witches uh poor girl i mean love Anne hathaway and uh it's a movie that i was hoping would be good the uh the last thing he wanted but just wasn't uh but i, I do see kate hudson winning here yeah shout out to colin and i for thinking like oh last thing he wanted this is a sundance must see when we saw it like last year and then immediately after it ends i'm like texting colin frantically like like does that movie make any sense do you know what happened in that movie so that's a rough one for Anne Hathaway but um I feel like so like when I say the Razzies uh can get a little mean-spirited I feel like Katie Holmes is one of those because she got caught up in the whole like Tom Cruise thing that's just like I feel like they just like the dump on her which is very fun um but yeah I think Kate Hudson is is the pick yeah She's the most memeable one here. It's got to be. We're um, supporting actress. They got Maddie Ziegler for music. Uh, Kristen Wiig for Wonder Woman 1984. Maggie Q for Fantasy Island. Lucy Hale for Fantasy Island. And then they go with Glenn Close for Hillbilly LT, which is, uh, it's it's a pick that's worth talking about because I don't think she's awful in the movie personally. Um, I think she's all right, but I think it is one of those roles that it's, it's such a popular one that... Uh, that they go for it anyways. And if, if you check out my Oscar predictions on the site that just dropped on uh, Sunday here, um, I predict her to get an Oscar nomination. So she might be one of the rare people <laughs> to get a Razzie nom and an Oscar nom. And it, it has happened before with for the same role, but it's very rare. That would be hilarious. 
I, I mean, I'm in the opposite camp where I just think she's flat out bad in this movie. And I think most of it, I think, comes with it's like the most Oscar Beatty thing you'll ever see where it's this like beautiful stately actress like uglying herself up for this role and like and she, her her character name is Mima or whatever it is. <laughs> so um, it's like a parody of that character, but um, I yeah, I would hope she wins. It'd be hilarious. Um, if like that would invalidate everything the Oscars no, does, right. right? If she wins the round, we need to see her win both. <laughs> I mean, I don't want her to win the Oscar, but we need to see her win both. <laughs> then that means it's like one of the best performances ever, yeah. right? Because it'd be right up there with like Pacino and Heat where people are like, is this movie, is this performance good? Is it bad? I can't tell, but I love watching it. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's up there, but. It's uh, it's interesting. Um, and, and you know what? I think a lot of her performance too is that bad script. I remember we talked a few weeks ago about that Terminator uh allegory they used in the, film, uh, in the movie the, the the best best line in the movie yeah it's <laughs> it's a rough one so she lands there so now worst uh, supporting actor i keep wanting to say best but worst supporting actor uh chevy chase for the very excellent mr dundee rudy giuliani for borat and i think he'll probably win um <laughs> shyla Booth for the tax collector and then you got arnold schwarzenegger and bruce willis and like the most Arnold and Bruce titled movies. So you got Arnold Schwarzenegger for Iron Mask, which I've never heard of. Then you got Bruce Willis for Breach, Hard Kill, and for Survive the Night. <laughs> um, these are just so classic Bruce Willis uh, titled movies in his kind of post good Bruce Willis career era. Yeah. Have you seen the trailer to that Iron Mask movie? No. It's it's insane. So it's Jackie Chan, isn't it too? I think it's it's a Russian movie and it's it's like a backdoor sequel to a Russian movie that was made a few years ago that neither Schwarzenegger or Jackie Chan were in. And they're wearing like these crazy like beards and there's like some weird I, I can't even explain it. It's just it's insane. But uh Arnold Schwarzenegger is in it. So <laughs> it's odd. Um yeah, I mean, you gotta love Arnold, but that's an interesting, interesting choice. You gotta make your money, I guess. But <laughs> you think? Yeah, tough for Bruce too. He's just in like VOD hell at this yeah. point. I mean, I feel like he brings that on himself because he just doesn't care anymore when he performs. But yeah, uh, it's it's tough to see. Yeah, um, we're screen combo now, and I think we know what our winner is going to be. But we got Adam Sandler and his <laughs> grating simpleton voice for Huey Halloween, uh, Lauren Lapkus and David Spade for the wrong Missy. Uh, Harrison Ford and the the uh, totally fake looking CGI dog in Call of the Wild. Um, I still I still love those behind the scenes uh, footage from that movie. Oh, they're they're hilarious. <laughs> they're so funny. Um, it's just the person on the ground on all fours. <laughs> too good. Uh, Harrison Ford's like he's got to be weirded out. Um, Robert Downey. He's probably just so pissed. <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. and his utterly <laughs> unconvincing Welsh accent there in Doolittle, and then the one that I think is going to be the winner is Maria Bakalova and Rudy Giuliani. In uh, brackets, there, yes, that really is Rudy Giuliani for Borat's subsequent movie film. And you know, I think they'll probably go for this one just because it's so popular and it's it's really it really took over social media and even just mainstream news whenever this movie came out in October. Uh, so I I predict that'll be the winner. Maybe even if it's not the worthy winner, I think it's just such a tough category to interpret, um, especially with these very different nominees. So I think that'll probably pull it out. Yeah, I kind of like how they go, like they do fun stuff mm -hmm. with this, like, <laughs> like Harrison Ford and the fake looking CGI dog. That's kind of funny. Yeah. And, you know, like 
with um i think they're going to just going to want to award ruby giuliani any chance they can get so i i expect him to i expect him to play oh definitely <laughs> that's that's like that's the that's the typical pile mm-hmm. on this move this thing made a lot of headlines so let's let him yeah. win but I hope I hope they like send him his award or like, do something else with that. That'd be hilarious. Um, so now we got worst director here, and the first one is interesting. Charles Band for all three Barbie and Kendra movies. So I'm like all three, and I looked it up, and like he released three movies this year, and they're all pretty short. I think they're all like under an hour each. But uh, yeah, so Charles Band for all three Barbie and Kendra movies. <laughs> um, Barbara Bialos and Thomas Mendez for 365 Days. Um, Stephen Gaggin for Doolittle. <laughs> they throw into Ron Howard for Hillbilly, and then Sia gets one for music. <laughs> and I could see Sia pulling it out. Yeah, that's the that's the the jokey one. The Charles Band movies are insane. Those are another ones I didn't know existed, and they just look like the worst. <laughs> Let's put two actors in front of a green screen. Let's like they're like the three movies. Like the first one is called like Corona Zombies. So like yeah, like mm. obviously, and then the second one is like Barbie and Kendra like storm area 51 and then like the other one i can't remember what the other one is but they're all just like wow like he like they did this this is someone gave him money to make these (laughs) oh god uh cringe um worst screenplay 365 days all three barbie and kendra movies uh doolittle fantasy island and hillbilly i don't know here i think this is a tough one i think they could go hillbilly but i don't i don't know i like it's 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 probably honestly the best of the five, but also bad at the same time and would be interesting to give it to, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. Shout out to fantasy Island for quietly just being the worst movie that no one's talking about. <laughs> Cause this is, I feel like no one cared when that movie came out and no one saw it, but it's, have you, you've seen it, right? It's like one of the worst things like that came out this past year. It's really, really Yeah, good. no, I actually took a rain check on that one. I never watched it, but it's been on my... Yeah, uh, that's smart. It's, that's smart. It's been on my prime home screen just sitting there as like new ads and it's just kind of sitting there. I'm like, maybe one day I'll just pop it on while I'm doing some homework or something, but... That's, that's not a good <laughs> idea. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, uh, and then the last one here is the worst remake, ripoff, or sequel. So they got Wonder Woman 1984, Hubie Halloween... Um, which is a ripoff of Ernest Scared Stupid. Interesting. Uh, Fantasy Island, um, Doolittle, and then 365 Days, which they consider a ripoff of uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. And it's a Polish remake, actually. Um, so yeah, we got these here. I think they'll probably go 365 Days just because it's, I think that and Music and Rudy are going to be the big winners of the night, personally, with uh, or the big losers, you could say, for the Razzies. Yeah, probably. I wonder how they're going to do the event. Are they just going to make the Zoom screens even more shitty? Like, they just try to make it as unclear and, like, all pixely as possible? Yeah, that'd be, that'd be funny. Right? Yeah. Because don't they normally do it in, like, an airport, like, <laughs> hotel ballroom or something like that? Isn't that what they normally do? Like, they try to make it as terrible as yeah, possible? Yeah, and, you know, one funny point, it's kind of pulling away from this, but I think uh, Sandra Bullock actually went to accept her award one time. Uh at the Razzies she I think it was the year that she won for the blind side the Oscar I think she also lost for something else that year and it was so funny because one night she had to accept her uh, Razzie and then the next one the Oscar or something like that but she was actually there and it's it's rare but it's funny to see um, when people attend this thing I mean you wouldn't want to attend it unless you're kind of chill with it but she was and she attended and she uh, gave a little acceptance speech 
wasn't that for all about Steve or whatever that movie is yeah. where she's like obsessed with with uh, Bradley Cooper or whatever I think I think that's what that movie's called I watched like 15 minutes of it one time and it looked like the worst thing so I stopped um, but I think what's the other really famous one it's the Halle Berry performance right for Catwoman yeah where she like got up there and was like fake crying and it was one of the like it was one of her best performances and that's not even me making a joke it was just really really good <laughs> yeah so you're right it was a uh... It was all about Steve there for um, Sandra Bullock. And it was the same year that she won the Oscar. So, but yeah, that, that uh, Halle Berry one sounds quite familiar. I think I recall that as well, but uh, I, I don't think obviously it's probably going to be virtual this year. Um, not going to be a solid, but uh, it'd be funny to see Ruby Giuliani pull up, accept some awards. Yeah. He just shows up <laughs> complete, complete 180 from, <laughs> who he's been in the past what like forever well they're gonna host it there did you hear they're gonna host the razzies at the four seasons are they (laughs) (laughs) i got it we got there (laughs) uh so that's your razzie rundown Uh, a lot of fun so that's going to be in april um next thing we did want to touch on though there was an article from the ringer a very interesting article talking about cinemas and talking about going back to the movie theaters and they touch on china um Obviously, China is where COVID kind of uh, originated, and they had a tough time at the at the start, but they seem to have been one of the better countries to handle it. I know with the government being a little bit more authoritarian than others, they have a little more of a clamp on the way they do things and the way their lockdowns are run. So they have been able to, in that respect, kind of weed out uh, transmission of cases better than other places. So they um, opened up theaters fully. Um, a while back and then uh kind of things have have been starting to come out there and slowly but surely the market has been booming in um china which is pretty impressive they did a re-release of first thing to note of avatar last weekend and it officially reclaimed the crown it passed avengers endgame with this re-release so i think we're going to see non-stop of uh avatar and avengers going back and forth just with re-releases but that's kind of off the point here, but kind of getting back on the track. You see the Chinese box office and it's absolutely booming. Um, There's a film called Hi Mom, which is uh, being dubbed as the Chinese Back to the Future. Um, It made $700 million in just two months this year at the Chinese box office. And that's just absolutely incredible. And it passed uh, so many records that had been broken by American films. Um, But but what do you make of this? Do you think this is a good sign overall for, for movie theaters? Do you think this will translate? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot for like a lot recently, and I feel like out of the three of us, uh, including Colin, I feel like I'm the most pessimistic on most things that we talk about. <laughs> so, like when we talk about theaters kind of like shuttering and are they coming back, and I'm just out here being like, yes, they're gone, goodbye forever, movie theaters. But um, I do feel like because we are getting to a point now, and then it's it's still we're still kind of in this treacherous spot where. Uh, vaccines are coming out a little better cases are going down and here in the states things look a lot better but then you also have like like texas being like no we're open have fun go cry go crazy and you're like ah this doesn't this doesn't feel too good like we're kind of like on like kids and like the last day of school like we're really itch we're really itching for this to be done but it's not quite done um but i feel like we are starved to actually like do things again 
in so many different ways. Like I was just looking on like Airbnb like yesterday. I was like, huh, what can I, can I do something in September? I figure post-vaccine actually like go somewhere. Um, so in that sense, like the communal experience, I feel like theaters are like one of the first places that uh, people will flock back to. Cause they're like, I can't wait to like do things again. Um, and I can't wait because I just passed my one year anniversary of the last movie I saw in theaters, which was Bloodshot, which is still the most like sad thing to me. But um, I just I, I really hope it comes back. I, I think there's a really good shot that um, the things that we were scared about more is more concerned with the movies that are actually playing in theaters rather than our theaters coming back or not. Because we're probably like, well, all this probably just leads to like only blockbusters are playing in theaters now and then you have your indie theaters in your major cities and things like that but just kind of accelerating the timeline of like that reducing of the middle ground that we've been seeing for so many years now 100 percent. i do mostly agree there um another thing i did want to touch on was a movie in february that came out in china so just last month detective chinatown 3 and 400 million dollars in its opening weekend new record for uh, one market opening weekend passing Avengers Endgame. So this to me is a, it's, it's an interesting sign. And I think it's a good sign um, that, that people do want to get back out. And it's not just that. I mean, we saw a few weeks ago, Tom and Jerry made $14 million in its first weekend. Um, and I'm like Tom and Jerry, but I mean, you think of it, theaters are slowly starting to reopen uh, New York city. They're starting to open a couple of their theaters, obviously. And the, the vaccine has been rolling out pretty well in the United States. And I didn't really know this, but I mean, having that New York City market shut down for so long must have been uh, so tough on the industry because I, I, I didn't realize with this, but three of the boroughs in New York City make up 3% of the overall box office in America. I, I forget which three. There's five total boroughs, Manhattan, Queens, uh, the Bronx, Brooklyn. Uh, can't name the last one there, but three of them make up 3% of the overall box office. So it's a big thing. And they just started opening a few weeks ago. Tenet finally released in New York City <laughs> on uh, in theaters. So it's interesting. And I, I, am, I am very excited to see what happens. I think these next few months hopefully are good. Um, vaccines are a little bit slower here in Canada than they are in the United States, but I do hope we see at least over this summer something promising. Um, but yeah, and, and and one point that they made in this article, this Ringer article that I did enjoy was when you think about things, you think about, say, eating it at a restaurant versus takeout. Um, does the kind of takeout industry and does how much uh, people have been ordering takeout during the pandemic, will that kill inside eating? And I don't think so. I think people will want to go out and enjoy a meal. And I think it's similar to theaters. I think they can coexist in the same in the same universe, if you will. And uh, I do, I do hope to see theaters thrive again, hopefully. And I think hopefully by 2022, we see like back to a normal running uh, box office in North America. I know this year is going to be weird, but I do hope we see that next year. Yeah, I think the thing that I've think that I've kind of locked on to is that, I mean, for how many, like five or 10 years now, I feel like it's just really hard to grab people's attention. So like, like your $25 million movie or like your, maybe your, your restaurant that is fine, gets decent Yelp reviews. Like that's like those kind of things might go away, but I feel like if there's a way to eventize everything, people are still going to want to come out. It's just a matter of creating the right experience for how like our interests have changed. Cause I do think 
in a lot of ways, like people like, I mean, there's gonna be so many different changes that come out of like all of this, like remote work and definitely more takeout. And there's, a, there, there are things that will undeniably change and change for good. But um, I think people, people just want to do things. It's, <laughs> it sounds stupid, but it's sometimes as simple as that. Like we kind of just want to go out and there's like few things that are more fun than watching a good horror movie with a crowded theater and stuff like that. Or like, even like Avengers Endgame was really cool to see in theaters. It was packed. That was a really fun communal experience. I feel like people just really crave that. So um, maybe I just need to be less pessimistic on this podcast because <laughs> I do think things will come back. And I think this, uh, all the information laid out in this article um, are really good signs. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, so that's our, that's our little tidbit in the box office. So uh, we'll move on to now Netflix's top 10 real quick. Just want to run through it. Um, so at number 10 this week, we had I Am Legend. I remember being pretty young when it came out. Um, I remember being a little bit scared to watch it when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, I remember that very well. <laughs> um, so that was at number 10. We got Moxie at nine, Training Day at eight. Then you got Safe Haven, uh, the Brock Island, or sorry, the Block Island Sound, uh, The Dark Knights on here. I Care a Lot at four. It's really holding in strong. And then Bigfoot Family at three. Parker at two and yes day at one. So I'm not too familiar with much on this list besides some of those older movies. Um, yes, yeah, so that's our Netflix top 10. Not, not really too much to run over there. Would you say? Yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that is kind of what it's, what it's been. Uh, so now we'll move on to um, the segment of our show without a name. I'll call it a book club, but with a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think we just can never come up with a name with this we just have to each each week just take turns coming up with stupid names yeah but basically we just choose a movie for all of us to watch yeah <laughs> i guess it's our movie club it's, it's pretty cool so uh this week uh i'll let you take it away in a second there because it was your pick but we watched a mickey and nikki a 1976 film written and directed by elaine may so uh if you wanted to kick us off there with this movie a little bit yeah. Um, yeah. Mikey and Nikki was a movie that I was really interested in watching for a while. Um, I bought it on Criterion and I just just laying on my shelf and I needed an excuse to watch it. So here we are. <laughs> but um, I was really interested in it because I don't have a lot of experience with Elaine May um, just as a, like a comedic force and just as a performer in general. And like you are i've done a lot of reading on her recently and she is so influential and we i feel like she just does not get her due in the same way like she was i mean she was big with uh, mike nichols the big the big like influential director they had their comedy special or stand-up routine together and like steve martin's been has widely said that uh, elaine may is like one of her biggest is one of his biggest influences and things like that um but yeah, she's been a playwriter and a screenwriter for a really long time. She's wrote, written a bunch of screenplays for Mike Nichols movies, but um, she's only directed a few movies uh, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, so Mikey and Nikki was her third movie that she directed. And this movie was a wild, like behind the scenes mess. It's like kind of an all timer when you get into the weeds of it. Uh, so it was originally planned to come out in the summer of 1975 and it had a uh, 1.8 million dollar budget, and so um, I did a little math, uh, basically just putting it into a calculator on a website. But that is a uh, nine to ten million dollars in today's money. Um, but the production was so wild and it went way over budget that it didn't end up coming out until December of the following year, 
and it cost $4.3 million. So it ended up being like basically a $20, $21 million movie by today's standards, which just is like, I can't imagine the studio just being like, uh, like <laughs> you're just hemorrhaging money for us. <laughs> um, so they fired her on the movie, but she like, she got to stay on basically because as they were firing her, she stole two of the film's uh, negatives from the studio and just hid them in her friend's garage in Connecticut. This is a crazy story. And she was like, I'm not giving these back until you rehire me and let me finish the movie. And then Paramount was like, uh, I guess we have no bargaining power here. So they let her finish the movie and it flopped, obviously. And then um, she was just put in director jail for a while. And then a decade later, she made Ishtar, which is one of the most famous box office flops in the history of movies. Um, I think it, the original budget was around 27, 28 million. And the final budget was 51 million after they, she finally finished it. So that inflated it to today's standards, about $120 million movie, which is insane. Like think like, so it rose from like 65 ish to 120. That's like, you're like, you were given the money to make like a social network and you bring it back and it's like a CGI extravaganza. Like it's the same, it's, it's nuts. So, yeah, after Ishtar, which is one of the most famous bombs ever, she just never directed again. Um, so she went, she did a lot on uh, a lot of playwriting and things like that, but she just didn't return. So I think that's probably one of the reasons we don't hold her in the same esteem. But um, that's kind of why I wanted to check out this movie because Criterion did a lot with um, basically after the, the Mikey and Nikki debacle, uh, she got the rights to the movie from Paramount. And then Criterion helped facilitate this director's cut, which is out now. And I think it's available on HBO Max and Prime, as well as the Criterion collection. But um, yeah, I just really wanted to check it out. So what did you think of it? Yeah, it was very, uh, very good movie. I enjoyed it. Um, I think we spoke about this before you got on, but it's a little bit messy, as you said. And I think that's a little bit of the charm of it. Um, it kind of re reminded me a little bit because some of the city sequences and just kind of how grimy the movie is at times. It reminded me of two movies I watched recently. Um, weirdly, Superfly and Taxi Driver. It kind of has that same kind of vibe a little bit in the city and just kind of mm -hmm. that griminess a little bit of the film. But it was great to see um, Peter Falk here, who is a classic actor as Columbo. Um, and even John Cassavetes, who's a very popular actor as well. It's just cool to see them. But yeah, I enjoy this movie. I think it's a good pick from you. Uh, and that backstory you talked about, that is just, that's one for the ages, I think. Hiding the uh, the film at your friend's house and just kind of holding them ransom there for that. I think that's a really, uh, a really fun story. Yeah. I think that's, that definitely contributes to how messy the movie looks. Cause like there's some instances in the film where the actual film itself just doesn't look very good. Like there's very moments where there's a lot of moments where it just seems like the movie just like looks kind of like not good. I noticed that. <laughs> and like, there's some whole, there's some hilarious like ADR dubbings in this movie that just clearly like the mouth. It's like the voice is, isn't matching the mouth at all. They're just really, really bad. Do you, um, there was one scene where it was but, like blurry even. Do you remember that? There was, there was a couple shots. Of yeah, 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 yeah. Apparently, I didn't see it, but apparently there's one scene where you can see the boom mic. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't notice it this time. Maybe I was looking at my phone, which I'm telling on myself there because I shouldn't do it anymore. But um, <laughs> it's just, yeah, I, I really like this movie because I had another reason for choosing it because I'm a big, I'm a Philadelphian at heart. And this movie takes place in grimy 1970s philadelphia um but the reason i do really like this is that when you think of like mob movies you think of like you think of like the godfather right like these or the goodfellas like these very operatic 
big time movies with almost like these like godlike figures in a sense and in this movie like all these people just kind of suck <laughs> you know like they're very, they're low level goons um they basically i guess we haven't even talked about the plot of this movie where um nikki the john cassavetti john cassavetti's character um is basically he's gonna get killed by the mob he's, they put out a hit on him because he stole some money and so he's like freaking out in this low in this just disgusting hotel and then he calls up uh his old pal Mikey to just help him out. So it's a all in one night movie of them just trying to evade uh, this hitman played by Ned Be- uh, Betty Beatty. And um, yeah, that's basically the movie. It's just them hanging out, you know, just like being pals, being bros, toxic masculinity and all that. Um, but I just love how, how disgusting and um, just like the, these people, like they don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. And that's the great part of it too, where, um, they're both trying to they're going they're doing all these things for self-preservation but they also know that the that the the other one is the only one who knows them very very well because there's a really telling conversation later on with Peter Falk and his and his wife where he has to keep repeating himself and she just doesn't really know all these things about about him and Nikki can rattle off all those details by heart and they have these they have this really complicated uh, relationship but deep down they both know that they're the best friends and they can't, and they both are the only people who know everything about each other. So it's all these really fascinating juxtapositions where um, like Mikey is like alerting um, the hitman where Nikki is because he's trying to show to the mob boss that he's not trying to help Nikki, but he also does want to help Nikki. So there's all these really cool, interesting things in this movie where, um, like I think there's a really good scene where um, Nikki goes to visit his mom's grave graveyard, and he's like really sad, but he's also hysterically laughing at the gravesite. Yeah, and it's just like it's all these things where he's just hysterical the entire movie. Um, John Cassavetes is really good. I I love I love how good he is in this movie, but it's just he's so hysterical, and he clearly like this moment to him is like so important, but also he he's such a shithead that all he can do is laugh. <laughs> And just like he has like the he's a really great drunken laugh yeah. in this movie. It's really good. So um yeah, it was just it's just really cool. It's I love a I love a good all in white all in one night movie. Really love uh, Scorsese's after hours. Um I just thought I just this movie's just neat. I'm really happy that um Criterion helped Elaine May out on this one because it seems like I it seems like people have definitely picked up on this movie since. Like it's got a like a critical reevaluation since it came out i think it was 2019 when it came out on criterion but um i just like that because i feel like she is someone who we don't really talk about a lot and i'm looking forward to actually like getting into like her other movies and writing and whatnot because she seems like a really fascinating figure and she's from philadelphia so it's like i got, I got yeah to. um so so it came out <laughs> in 1976 but you have the director's cut that came in 86 and then the criterion collection uh director's cut there that came out in 2019 so i'm kind of trying to figure out which one i watched so you watched the criterion cut from that that's yeah that's i was wondering that where it's like i probably watched the final version i'm wondering if you had Mm -hmm. a lesser version i wonder i so i watched mine on prime so you said tubi is another place where you can check out this movie as well right yeah and hbo max right i think okay it's all it's it's i do like it's all over the place now which is yeah i do wonder i feel like you you probably have the exclusive one i feel like criterion would want to hold on to that so i wonder if i would have seen the original or the second director's cut i'm I'm probably guessing the second directors but i'm gonna look into that now after 
we finish up recording here. How, what was the runtime? Do you remember? I, I had a hour 46 for me. Yeah, mine's basically the same. So maybe it was the exact same okay. one. Maybe that's the one they put in the circulation now. Mm-hmm. It, it is pretty unique, though. I, I always love movies that have like three different cuts, just kind of talking about what's different and, and kind of the history behind those cuts as well. But you got to love Criterion coming in clutch for uh, for her there. Yeah, it's just it's just cool. I like when they do this kind of stuff. And obviously, there are definitely bones to pick with Criterion because one of the reasons I bought this movie is because I was looking specifically for a movie directed by a woman to buy. And there's just not a lot of those on the Criterion collection. It's they it's still very slim picking. It's mostly just uh, white dudes. So I think that's something they're trying to correct now. But um, it's still kind of tough. But I do. I think this movie is really interesting. Um, Peter Falk and Cassavetes are great in there. Um, there's a really good uh, cameo by um, M. Emmett Walsh, uh, who is uh, amazing in the Coen Brothers' Blood Simple. Uh, he, I always enjoy him showing up. He's a great character actor. Um, but yeah, there's just the, the, this movie is all just about the experience because it's just like you could tell a lot of this was just improv because there's this one really good fight scene where Cassavetti slaps Peter Falk in the face and immediately slips down. Yeah, that was good. And like that, like that, that was definitely something that just happened. And there's a bunch of that in the movie where there's just these they're just playing off of each other, and it it really does work. You do see a lot of um, Elaine May's um, playwriting skills because the movie basically functions as a play, right? Because it's just like let's sit down and evade the hitman and talk in this place they talk in a bar for like 10 minutes and they have a quick bus scene and they go to the graveyard and have another really long chat and it's just all these like connections of like scenes of them talking um and there's like a there's like a nice like improv logic to the movie where um cassavetti's character is basically just like i want to do this and now i want to do this and they just keep going and going and going um, so I really like that to it too. It's like it's pretty formless. There's really no structure to it. Um, so in that sense, it's kind of it's kind of a one of one. And um, yeah, it's really messy, but I think there's, I think that's a lot of the charm. Yeah, in it. it's just in a charm. That's really great for sure. Um, yeah, good movie to dissect. Great pick for the week. Uh, with that though, I think we are done with this week's edition of the Movie Bible Podcast. Uh, Nick, as always, it's uh, great to uh, be on chatting with each other. Yeah, what are you choosing next week? Choose like a 24-hour movie? <laughs> yeah, I'll keep it. I think uh, Colin's in the first week was only like 90 minutes or so. And then yours was yeah. 146. Maybe I'll have to one-up it. Go up 15 minutes every time. We'll peek at the Irishman. Yeah, maybe. Well, I just bought I just bought uh, Sutton Tango on Blu-ray, which is uh, seven hours and 30 minutes. So right, yeah. looking forward to that one coming soon. Are you going to do that uh, one sitting or what? <laughs> if you don't, you're not a real movie fan. You're not a real cinephile. I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm not. But maybe maybe you should just make us watch the Snyder Cut twice. Maybe that could be your uh, move. Eight hours. For next week. <laughs> um, well, Snyder Cut, I don't know. Anyways, as always, you can check us out on moviebabble.com. we got our YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and all the rest. So we'll be back next week, 100% talking about all things movies and uh, catch you guys then.